What I find really interesting about bounty tournaments, which I think is kind of a really nice like poker's life corollary, these moments are so fleeting where you get to open Jack Six suited. Like <laughs> it's there and then it's gone. Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are a move from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in chess. Right now, orders are my love language. With that in mind, let's get into this episode's special guest. Hello, guys. So great to be on the air with you all. I know. We don't know what show we're on right now. It's confusing. Yes, who could have imagined the grid slash hip race? It's a combo, it's a collab, yes. <laughs> well, before we start, I'm conscious that both the poker and chess worlds have had some, let's say, alleged cheating scandals recently. It is probably only in that context that I could ask you the following question. Frog poison or anal beads? Oh, anal beads. <laughs> And without further ado, let's move on. Let's get into this hand. It's from a mystery bounty. So be prepared out there for some interesting strategy implications with which you may not be very familiar. This comes from the mystery bounty at the recent EPT Barcelona. It's level three of day two. Jen, you are in the bounty phase, which began at the start of the day with 343 survivors from day one, roughly a third of the field, plus 100 (coughs) very smart people who decided to max late reg. Dara, on our recent mystery bounty topical piece with Kat Arnsby, we talked about this way of doing a mystery bounty and you highlighted why late registering was ultra exploitative. Can you reiterate why it is so? Yeah, it's so because obviously the closer you are to the bounties coming into play, the better chance you have of actually making that portion. And because of so many people have been eliminated from the tournament already, the bounty part of the prize pool would be worth several multiples of the amount that you're actually putting into the pool. The ultimate is the way stars actually do it. And I've, I've said this to stars, they really need to change this, but they allow people to come in right at the point at which bounties are in play. So you can literally win a bounty from the moment you sit down, which is incredibly profitable because at that point, the bounty is worth three or four times the amount that you're putting in. Now, you won't be able to get the bounty of everybody at the table, only the people that you're equal to or cover. But as an example, first one I did in Prague, there were three late readers at my table and there was one guy who had got with less than starting stack. So the three late readers could all win each other's bounties immediately plus that other guy. And that bounty was worth three and a half times what it had been at the start. So it's an incredible exploit to allow people to do that. It also depends on how many people are doing it. Like if you were the only person doing it, then it wouldn't be particularly advantageous because you would only be able to win the bounty of that one other guy at the table who got through with less than starting stack. And if 
almost everybody was doing it, then the effect would be diluted. But the sort of middle point where a significant chunk of the field is doing it is kind of the nuts for those people. And they're getting a huge equity boost by doing that. Break it down, Dara, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with like the mystery bounty format. You pay 3,000 euros to enter this tournament. So 2,000 euros goes to the overall prize pool and 1,000 goes to the mystery bounty prize pool. But unlike a progressive bounty, those bounties don't come into play until much of the field has been eliminated, right? So the value of that bounty includes not only the 1K, but also an average of everybody who's already been eliminated. You and I, we both actually max late reg this bounty tournament in EPT Barcelona. The value of the bounty when you started was 1,000, right? So that's what we're putting into the bounty pool. But by the time two thirds of the field had been eliminated, it was worth more like 2,500 euros. Yeah, that's correct. Our 1,000 became 2,500. Now, our share of the bounty pool wasn't quite 2,500 because we were coming in with less than average stack. It was some number between 1,000 and 2,500. If I had to guess, I would say it was probably around 2,200. Now, you're much more likely to double up in this format than in any other format. Because of the fact that people can win your bounty, you're much more likely to get called when you do eventually shove. So you're going to get a much better spot to double up than you would in a normal tournament. And then once you double up, you're going to cover quite a lot of people typically. So it's always the case that it's going to be plus EV, even if you were very, very unlucky and you got to the table and you covered absolutely nobody. Absolutely. So for instance, in some situations where, you know, somebody would make a tight fold when you jam the button, like they're basically always going to call you. And in this case, you would start with 20 big blinds and you're going to get called very, very light when you jam or rejam. So when you have a strong hand, an ace queen or an ace jack, you're going to get called by hands like ace five, ace nine that might normally fold. And obviously your chances of doubling up are then going to skyrocket which is extremely exciting. And that definitely happened to me there. You ended up cashing this tournament, I know, but I was extremely lucky in that very, very early on, I doubled up, then I doubled up again, and all of a sudden I went from covering no one to literally covering the entire table. And in the hand in question, the grid hand, if you will, I had 50 big blinds at the 2,500 big blind level, which was a little more than 125,000 in my starting stack. And this is a kind of stack where, of course, you have to really be aware of everything that's going on at the table in a bounty, every person that you cover, their position, whether they've looked at their cards, all of these things are so relevant. Well, just to clarify all the nitty gritty details, because like you said there, Jen, I I think they're really relevant to all the decisions you make. 15% of this field will cash and there's roughly 20% left. So sort of a, a looming ICM bubble factor creeping in here. Let's say we're bubble adjacent. Also, I think you said to me as well, the rule was that bounties could only be drawn at the break. So you had quite an easy way to calculate the value of a bounty because no bounties had been won yet. You didn't find out if someone had won the big one or lots of people had won little ones, which would increase it. So you were able to divide the bounty pool by the 473 eligible bounty people. So you knew roughly 2,500 was the number, which is nice as well. You sort of have all that detail in front of you. Yeah, exactly. So in this particular bounty structure, there was a $250,000 bounty as the grand prize. And the large majority of the bounties were going to just be 1,000 euros, which is by far the more likely one. I think it was something like 90% of the time you would pull a 1,000 euro bounty. And then there were some really nice prizes, some really nice add-ons by stars. There was a platinum pass add-on and a couple other ones that didn't even come from the prize pool that were just added to the event. So I had 50 big blinds under the gun. We were playing eight-handed at the time, and 
It was a third level of the day, 2,500 big blind. So I noticed that there's a couple of interesting things going on in my table at the moment. First of all, Paul Newey has just sat down with a starting stack. It's the third level, so obviously he didn't just start, but he probably late regged and is sitting with 30,000 in chips. And then there's also somebody with a very small stack, a micro stack, who's two to my left. So I always find this to be a really interesting thing in bounty tournaments when there's a micro stack, but you are to the right. So you kind of have to just figure out what are the chances that they're going to get involved because it's so tragic if you fold and then they get their chips in and you didn't get a chance to even consider calling them. So how do you deal with a thing like that, Dara? What I generally do in this boss is I just limp and I limp close to 100%, presuming the bounty is so juicy that we can definitely limp call everything. The problem with mystery bounties is they're impossible to solve. So I don't even know if that would be solver approved when the mystery bounty format finally hits the solvers. But that seems like the best exploit. You see a similar thing in big anti games where it's clear that the best thing to do when there's a huge ante is to just limp a very wide range and not do any raising at all. There's no point in raising when the antes are several times the big blind. You might as well just limp and then see what develops behind. And by limping the top of your range as well, you obviously protect your range overall. I love the idea of limping. In this particular table, I prefer what I did, which was raising, because I felt that people were not as bounty aware as I was. Mm-hmm. So I thought that there might be some pretty tight yeah. folds. Limping, I think, would pique their interest and be like, oh, why is she limping? Is it because she's trying to like get that bounty? So I kind of like raising here, which is what I did. I think there's another good reason for you to open in this particular example, Jen, which is that we are four or five percent of the field away from the bubble. And for a lot of people, you know, yes, it's lovely to pick up a bounty. But if you don't cover that many people at the table, then actually making the money is quite valuable if it's going to go in the next orbit, say. So by just going for the min raise here, you still can be the one who calls off. You still have that underlying threat of being the first to act. So if anyone acts aggressively behind you after this short stack is flicked it in, they have to worry about you the whole time. You know, you're still going to be closing the action. So in a situation where you can maybe get people to overfold because of some ICM, I think it's quite a nice little exploit, even with the hand that you had, which I think you're about to tell us is not very, very strong. Oh, yes. I had Jack six suited. Um, So what happened in this case was the micro stack actually snap folded. You know, of course he's usually gonna fold. I actually had some kind of read that I thought he was gonna go with his hand, but of course, like most live reads, it ended up to be completely inaccurate. <laughs> and I, I did get called, however, by the hijack, which wasn't necessarily a good thing. He had 40 big blinds. So it was a stack that didn't cover me, but could certainly hurt me. And more importantly, he did seem to be very bounty aware. He's seen the other player at the table who was really aware of all the equity that was on the table. Maybe you guys know who it is. His name is Preben Stoken. He's the absolute crusher, yeah. <laughs> yes. I could tell he was a crusher. So right. he calls in the hijack. And I feel like he thought about it for a second. Like he thought about raising. And we'll get back to that. But I think from his perspective, with 40 big blinds covering a lot of the table, but not me, knowing that I'm bounty hungry, his decision is quite interesting with his hand that he ended up having. And Paul Newey ended up jamming. Now, me with the Jack Six suited, I pretty quickly rejam all in. And I'm expecting like a, a snap fold from the hijack. I'm, <laughs> but he starts tanking. He thinks we're like two minutes and uh, <laughs> finally ends up folding. And Newey turns over the six, seven suited. So I'm like thrilled. Oh, this is great, right? Not only did I get all the dead money in the pot with Jack Six suited, but I'm up against six, seven suited. This is beautiful. 
And the flop was five, five, seven. So I did end up losing the hand, but I still feel really great because I kind of accomplished what I wanted to do with the hand in isolating a bounty and capturing some dead money. And after that, what I find really interesting about bounty tournaments, which I think, you know, is kind of a really nice like poker's life corollary is that these moments are so fleeting, you know, where you get to open Jack six suited, like (laughs) it's there and then it's gone, right? You know, at, at some point the stacks kind of consolidate, the average stack goes way up. So you can't get away with doing things like rejamming jack six suited in the same way. So I was like kind of happy that I took that opportunity. And then I started to get really fortunate and double up a couple of times soon thereafter. But the most interesting thing in this hand to me is Craven spot because he has the ace five suited. What do you think is best for him? Should he originally three bet or do you like the flat? It's a really complicated spot because there's a lot of different things going on there. First of all, he knows that you're super, super wide because of the bounty factors. But then with Paul lurking behind with the kind of stack that's looking to get in, he knows that if he flats or even if he raises, he's going to stick it in quite a lot. So he's probably thinking about how his hand might potentially play a three-way as well. If he has a hand like king-queen suited or king-jack suited, that's a hand which actually plays better three-way than heads up. And In our book, PKO Poker Strategy, we have a section where we show every single hand on the grid and we show how it does heads up, typically against one reasonably strong range and how it does three-way. And there's a couple of interesting things. There are some hands which much prefer to be heads up, which is basically the the hand that he has. And there are other hands which much prefer to be three-way. And like King Jack suit, it doesn't do very well heads up. It'll be dominated a lot. It'll it'll never be very far ahead, et cetera, et cetera. But it actually does really, really well three-way. So those types of hands, King Queen suited, King Jack suited, they would want to flat anyway. And then I think he should balance that probably with hands like the hand he has, which actually don't do well three-way, but they'll do fine in position against your very wide range if the players behind all fold. So I think a couple of good things can happen for him if he just flats. First of all, if everybody behind folds, he gets to play in position against your very wide range and the pot is not inflated yet to the point where he's crippled by ICM. But if he three bets and you four bet shove, he can't call. And if you call, the pot's going to be so big now that he's going to be under ICM pressure right from the flop. So I think both of those situations are not good for him. The situation that actually happened, that's the sort of counter. That's kind of worse for him because if he had three bet and knew he had shoved and you folded, he could very profitably call off in that spot. But when knew he shoves and you reshove, he has a really, really difficult spot because he knows you're good enough still to have a very wide range. And ace-five suited should be doing better than normal. But, you know, ace-five suited is a kind of a deceptive hand. People will often think it does better than it uh, actually does three-way. And I'm just looking at my book now to see, well, ace-five suited against one legitimate range has 42%, which is not too bad. You know, if you take bounty considerations into effect and the pot odds probably giving you like 45%, you're only 3% short, but ace five suited only has 24% against two legitimate ranges. So it's exactly the type of hand I said, it's much worse three-way than it is two-way. So I think once he finds himself in that spot and he thought it through, he thought, okay, well, even if Jen is super wide here, ace five suited just isn't good enough to go with three-way. Yeah, and painful, of course, when the flop is five, five, seven. Um, and in my case, I really do think I'm probably um, just reshoving like 100% of my range because I feel like it makes so much sense for the in-position player to three-bet widely here because of my range being so wide. So I'm really discounting a lot of his value hands there, playing it as traps. 
the risk of being wrong is I could still bank and, you know, get both bounties, both Paul Newey's bounty and Praben's bounty. And I think that that is a very good gamble in this spot. I mean, I tried to do a little equity calculation here and, you know, the percentage of times that he folds and I win, the percentage of times that he calls and I just get super lucky. And it seems like it's almost like a bit of a wash. If I rejam and he calls, of course, I'm usually in bad shape, but the times that I get really lucky, I just have such a ridiculous amount of equity because I get the bounty, I am the chip leader, I'm just really crushing. So I think it's a, a very acceptable risk to take. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what percentage of the time does he call? If it's 50% of the time, obviously, it's probably not a reshove. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking more like 20 to 30%. That's in reason. It also might be a spot where he's just supposed to flat his entire range, given that he has so many hands which want to flat anyway. He might not have enough at the top of his range that wants to three bet. Like he can't just three bet his super strong hands. So it's a very tricky spot for him to do that. I mean, this is why mystery bounties and bounty tournaments in general are such fun because they present us with these weird spots. Oh yeah, it's so fun. And this one's pretty complicated. Even though it's just a pre-flop spot, it's just got so many variables. Now, I don't like Nui's shove that much with the six, seven suited. I don't think it's the type of hand you want to do that with in this situation. I mean, I get why he's thinking we're wide, but I feel like you really like to have high cards in these types of spots where you're playing against super wide, like asinine ranges. I think you're being very polite here, Jen, because I think Paul, with the greatest amount of respect, uh, has just done a pretty trashy shove because he can't even get jack six a hand that turns out to be dominating him to fold. <laughs> In fact, it targets him. So, like, as Dara pointed out at the start, there are certain kinds of hands that even if we're going to put some light ones into our value range, when we know we're going to get called an awful lot, like, if you fold, it's almost certain that Prebs has a hand that would call anyway. So he's going to have to go up against one of those hands and he's beating nobody, really. Like, his specific hand literally beats no hands. I would totally like bring hands in that I would normally fold there, like ace eight off or ace nine off before I would do a six, seven suited. Yeah. Yeah. Again, there's another section in PKO Poker Strategy where we talk about that. Like when you know you're always getting caught or very likely to get called, like certain types of hands just become absolute trash then, like the seven, six suited, because it's just behind almost everything. And low pairs got way down in value as well. A hand like pocket twos when you're always getting called is basically in a flip or crushed. But then other hands go up in value. Like even a hand like queen four off has more value in that spot where you're getting called by jack six than a hand like seven six suited. Yeah, and I was thinking about that actually with the jack six suited. While probably I should open any suited jack, I do feel like ones with a, a card higher than a five in them are really nice because in the off chance that somebody does jam with like the deuces through fives, they're doing pretty well against them. Considering that he did jam with seven six suited, you got to imagine he'd also get in there with fours and threes probably. So I don't like that reshove. Also keep in mind that if there's a micro stack at the table, you do still have a fighting chance to get that micro stack and then perhaps at less of a risk to your overall stack than to some of the other players. So, you know, there's always kind of that positive side to look at. Absolutely. And to properly profile Paul, Paul gets in the mix with the high rollers. We've had guests on this show, people like Charlie Carroll down the years, who've described hands played with Paul. And, you know, he's no mug. But I think in this particular scenario, firstly, a 3K buy-in is not going to be at the higher end of his buy-ins. And I think someone like himself would be there for a good time and not necessarily a long time. He'd be there to sort of spin up with the 7-6 suitor or with whatever he really found to try to have the kind of stack that could take bounties. I think I think 
that's maybe another edge that exists in this mystery bounty format, maybe. Or maybe it's a way that it even levels the playing field for less professional players, where some of the pros are maybe going to be a little bit splashy, a little bit spewy at the beginning, trying to build a, a triple stack, a quadruple stack, where they can sort of enjoy the game and get in the mix for bounties and in doing so actually be a bit of value at the start. In the case of Paul, as well as many of the high rollers that played this event, there was a high roller soon after this day two had started. I think there was like a 25K or a 50K. So I totally agree that he was probably like, okay, let me get this in. And if it doesn't work out, I'm going to jump into this other tournament. A nice little tip there is if you do find a regular on the 25K circuit at your table in a 3K buy-in in the morning, check the schedule, see if that person might be interested in jumping into something else. I think we've covered this from pretty much every angle. Is there anything else, maybe a general point, we could make about Mystery Bounties? It is a new format. Maybe people are grappling with some of the fundamentals. One thing that was pretty funny, guys, and I'm sure this happened at all your tables too, people were asking about the strategy of when to pull the bounty. (laughs) Yeah, I actually got asked this this morning, and I'm surprised the question comes up so often. I'm also surprised you know, some very bright people have asked me this. I mean, obviously, it makes no difference. Uh, I think most of us can figure that out reasonably quickly. No difference in terms of EV, but I guess there is a psychological difference. If you go up and nobody has drawn yet, you know you absolutely 100% of the time have some chance of drawing the big one. Whereas if you wait until, say, 90% of the bounties have been drawn, then there's a 90% chance it's gone and you can't win it. But obviously, in the other 10% of worlds, you have a 10 times higher chance than if you'd gone at the start. I think most people do like to go early because they kind of like the psychological thing of having the sweat. Yeah, and I think also the psychological issue of knowing your bankroll, right? So if somebody's, for instance, like maybe satellited into a mystery bounty and it's already like the 3K represents like a high portion of their bankroll. And now they know, you know, if I pull the 250K, I know how much money I have right now. And I think that can be kind of like just useful information, not, maybe not necessarily for playing the game, but for your life. Maybe you invite your wife over to Barcelona for a vacation and you get her on a plane, right? So I kind of get why people like, they just want to satiate their curiosity. It's human nature and it's that simple. Now me, I didn't want to wait in a line for an hour. So I was one of the last people to pull. Um, Although at that point, so many of the big bounties were out of play. And so of course I was a little sad. Well, on the flip side of that, the only thing I could muster in, in the mystery bounties I've played so far is that there were two advantages to not pulling your bounty early. One, was it really pissed off other people that you didn't? (laughs) For some reason, (laughs) it it bothered people. So I think I was putting people on. But the second one was, when I thought deeper on it, is it's almost a free roll to lowering variance. Because if you did happen to become one of the last people remaining and you had your pool of maybe seven or eight bounties in your satchel and other people at the table had done similarly, the prospect of deal making right at the end factoring in what you now know in a more controlled way could lead to you guys maybe brokering some sort of lower variance deal yeah but that requires having friends that you trust david so (laughs) nobody do what you do i mean you've already pissed them all off by waiting until the end (laughs) we're gonna pull the 250k and start running (laughs) we know that you can't run especially not now oh here we go (laughs) In your own experiences playing in these mystery bounties, do you feel that people overreact or underreact to the bounty format? Underreact is definitely my experience having played maybe four of them live. Uh, just felt like people were far too close to normal ranges and not uh, loose ranges as they should have been. 
I would say 90 to 95% of people underreact and um, a, a, a small percentage of the remaining remaining overreact. Some people react just the right amount, but again, not, <laughs> not, not, not that very much. Certainly the general population definitely tends to underreact, um, which is kind of weird because that's the portion of the thing that excites them the most and they love the idea of winning bounties. But, but they get that they're supposed to widen the range. I think they just don't understand just how wide it should be. And I think what that kind of boils down to is they just underestimate the value of the bounty. They might know that a thousand goes into the prize pool and, and and that's kind of the number they're thinking about. But actually, by the time the bounties come into play, the average bounty could be worth two and a half, three thousand, four thousand. Another thing I've noticed is they definitely overestimate the value of the big bounty. While the big bounty's in play, it seems like everybody's reasonably aggressively chasing. But as soon as that gets pulled out, it's like everybody goes, OK, well, that's the bounty tournament over now. Now we just have a normal tournament. And uh, and even some pros said this to me, like uh, a friend of mine who went deep in the in, at the one at the WSP said, oh, well, I, I he was telling me about a hand and I was saying, okay, well, but the bounty factor, and he said, well, I don't think the bounty factor is very big anymore because Matt Glantz had already pulled the big bounty. I remember working it out that before Matt pulled that bounty, uh, the average bounty was worth six and a half thousand. And after he pulled it, it was worth five and a half thousand. So definitely not as big a factor as people think um, in a 1,000 tournament. I think it had just depressed everyone so much that he had won that everyone had just sort of given up on the tournament at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, man. How, can, we, can we get to the other Sam where, where Matt Glantz didn't win the bounty? Although it was a nice gesture he gave uh, the person who he uh, two outered, I think 5K or something. Yeah. That was a nice That was a nice move. Come on, really? Matt Glantz? Oh, <laughs> I have another question for you, Jen. Moving on. I did notice, actually, that you are on a nice little heater at the moment, Jen. You've cashed for over 100k in the last six months with results in Monte Carlo, Las Vegas, Barcelona, and more recently, Tampa. It's noticeable, though, that it's been one of those mm, crossbar periods for you. Lots of deep runs, but only one final table. Lots of bounties, but only the small ones. Has that been frustrating? A little bit, yeah, especially when you get, you run so, I ran like so hot in some tournaments, but then in when there's really a ton of equity at stake, running a little cooler. So, you know, final table bubbling as opposed to final tabling, but mostly it's been really exciting. You know, I'm pretty logical. So I, I'm not the type to be like, oh, I lost this race with so much equity without remembering that you won multiple races to get to that point. I was pretty thrilled. And I think the one of the most valuable things about running semi-deep in live tournaments is just all the practice that it gives you. It's really hard to replicate that. The inspiration to kind of like model the ICM spots that you were in, that you're super invested in. Whereas if you're just like studying them in a vacuum, it's like a little bit harder for the information to stick. So yeah, I feel really excited about it. Well, your fantastic book, Chess Queens, that you almost never mention on this show, I want to point out, almost never does it come up, uh, <laughs> came out uh, last March. And I know you're working with the same publisher on another book. Are you allowed to tell us what it's about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's actually called Thinking Sideways. So it's about thinking about all the different options in front of you rather than trying to like think 20 moves ahead. And I think that this is like a common misconception of like chess players, but also lots of great thinkers that they're planning really, really far in advance. Whereas really what they're seeing is ideas that are really right in front of you. And maybe you didn't never notice in chess. Magnus Carlsen talked about that a little bit on the Lex Friedman podcast about how he just, you know, sees a few moves ahead, but better than other people. Right. It's all about that breath. And I think you see that in bounties too, that, you know, you're just like trying to take every situation for what it's worth and look at all the different fresh options. I'm also kind of going to be bringing more poker into the book as well. 
just talking about these kind of skills that you can get from chess and poker and also deconstructing how both worlds really privilege one type of mind, but that there's ways for us to like bring more types of brilliance into it. Fascinating. I can't wait to read that one. Uh, Dara, speaking of books, there uh, is a poker strategy book coming uh, soon mm. from you, focusing on game theory, I believe. Uh, I've got to say yourself and your co-author, Barry Carter, have excellent instincts for how to structure a book and how to make material accessible. Can we expect more of the same? Yeah, first of all, I want to commend um, Jen on the, on the book title. That's a wonderful book title. I love the idea of thinking sideways. I, one of my favorite quotes of all time, Spike Milligan was trying to explain once what he liked about Irish people and why he self-identified as Irish. And he said, it's because Irish people think sideways. That was that that, that, that was the way he, he put it. But yeah, our book's going to have a much more duller title um, because obviously it's thought of by Barry. <laughs> it's a book we've struggled with far more than, than we thought we would because I had a very clear vision of what I wanted in the book. And I thought initially I had the the, the correct structure for it. But as we drilled into it, we kind of realized, oh, well, they need to know this first and they need to know that. So we ended up rejigging it quite a lot to the point that we ended up with something where I was really not sure whether this is what we were going for or, or not, which is basically to explain uh, game theory um, and GTO poker to to normal people, as Barry calls them. Uh, the The working title for this book that we couldn't use was GTO uh, for normies. It's, it's out with the review readers now. And this time we did send it, like normally when we send the books out to be reviewed, they go out to content experts, obviously, to make sure that everything is correct. And they go to some language experts like uh, Kat Arnsby and, and Danny Sprung, who can also advise us on the language. This time we sent it out to sort of target demographic people as well, the type of people we think who were trying to make benefit from the book. And um, the response from them has been incredibly positive, basically exactly what we wanted. Like, They've kind of come back and said, this is exactly the book we were looking for. We've been trying to understand all this GTO stuff. We bought other books on GTO. We got something out of it, but we didn't really um, get the, the overall concept. And we hear all this talk in, in training videos, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of goes over our head. That's pretty much what we're going for. Hopefully that will be the general um, reaction when the book comes out. If it is, then we'll regard the book as a big success. Otherwise, um, it'll be a, it'll have been a complete waste of time and people should just go and buy the existing GTO books. <laughs> I have two more questions for you before we wrap things up. One is sort of personal. I guess it overlaps with your personal and professional life. I hope it's okay to ask. This show, The Grid, is edited by your husband, Daniel. I edit The Chip Race myself, but my girlfriend, Sharon, edits The Lock-In, makes our strategy videos and produces all our promotional material. This basically means we have an argument in our house every time she's making something for us. Are you and your husband better collaborators? And if so, can you give me a tip, please? Oh, you guys have an argument every time you edit something? Every single time. Oh my gosh. Wow. No wonder the content is so good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you said the content is so good there. I think it depends on whether the arguments bleed into your like real life or are they really more confined to the work? That I think is a key question. With my husband and I, we sometimes argue a little bit about pre-production type stuff, but post-production, I let him do his thing because he's so good at it. And he always makes me sound smarter than I am. You do a good job with that too, David, though. I notice a lot of your guests, man, they just sound so smart. And I was like, I talked to that person last week. They're, they're not that smart. <laughs> do you want to name some names? <laughs> <laughs> you, cut out, you cut out all of their like, you knows, likes, etc. And I think that's one of the reasons you guys won the uh, the GPI award for the chip race. People think it's your intelligent questions and your like, you know, your pre-production that gets all this good stuff out of people. And that's definitely true. 
but it's also a lot of it comes in in the post-production as well. So big shout out to Sharon and to Daniel. Absolutely. Yeah, no, they are both uh, Trojan workers uh, for our causes. Finally, then, Jen, uh, I alluded to this jokingly at the start, but the chess world is in a bit of a tizzy or at least was in a bit of a tizzy over the Magnus Carlsen, Hans Neiman alleged cheating story. Magnus is an ambassador for Unibet, the company which sponsors Dara, myself and the chip race. We are hoping to interview Magnus at some point in the near future. You know, Magnus, what should we ask him? Oh, Magnus is a great interview. When are you going to interview him? Probably never, in fact. <laughs> David, this is just a pipe dream, David. Has. It's a pipe dream. Go with it. Go with it if it's a pipe dream. Obviously, I think that he has a huge passion for poker, but he has obviously not been interviewed about that nearly as much as chess. So I think you'll do well to ask him a lot about poker and sports. I feel like when sports as well, of course, because he's very in interested in like fantasy football, basketball also, he's obsessed with basketball. He loves, you know, he was in the uh, the summer league this year in uh, Las Vegas, which was actually part of the reason that he played in the World Series of Poker. It wasn't just that he wanted to play the WSOP. He wanted to be there for the summer league. So I've noticed that sometimes he closes up a little bit when he's asked about chess questions, especially like controversial stuff like anal beats. <laughs> but when he's asked about anything outside chess, he's just completely on fire and just says 100% what he thinks. So I think that's a really good way to go about it. Thank you very much for that tip. It has been great fun to be part of this crossover. I guess it has confirmed now to our audiences that both the Chip Race and the Grid exist in the same podcast universes. And with that, I'll hand back over to your usual host, Jen Shahadi. Well, thank you guys so much for helping me analyze this beautiful Jack Six suited hand. And I hope that uh, all of your Jack Six suited hands in the future win bounties. Thank you very much, Jen. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got time.